Please remain standing and open your Bibles to this morning's reading. It will be Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeking no one, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Please be seated. Good morning, beloved. Welcome. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're very glad to have you with us. have some old friends here today. I'm not going to name them and embarrass them. There's a few of them. And I am delighted that you are here with us this morning. And as always, church body, I'm blessed to serve with you um, as a co-heir of our Lord Jesus Christ. Recipients of grace. We're studying uh, through the book of Exodus. We've been here for a number of weeks And we've witnessed God's sovereign hand of of preserving and protecting the deliverer that He, Almighty God, is preparing to lead His people. Now, we've witnessed Almighty God working through faithful women, the Hebrew wives, the parents of Moses, the sister of Moses, who were at this time living under the edict of genocide to all Hebrew babies devised by Pharaoh. We've seen that there's a transition underway. There was the transition of this Hebrew baby boy into the royal palace as a prince of Pharaoh's palace and the daughter, or I should say the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
But this, friends, is a transition by the hand of God that is much greater, or concerning things much greater than the treasures and wealth of Egypt, the most powerful empire at this time in history. This is a transition of the making and molding of the leader of the great exodus. This is God's divine work. For in this account, we see a man stripped of power, stripped of privilege and prestige in order to be prepared for God's purpose, by God's power. And how is a man to be prepared and equipped for a call like this? I mean, this is quite an assignment. How is a man prepared for service and leadership that Moses would provide for the nation of Israel? A people that will become the nation of Israel. This is a man in the making. This is God's man in the making. This is God's leader under construction. And we would not write a story like this. Where a man who stands for justice is run out of town. I was thinking of Jonathan Edwards this week who was run out of town for preaching the truth. Preaching the Bible in his own church. Run out of town. You want to preach? Go preach to the Indians. Okay, I'll go preach to the Indians. Moses spends 40 years on the backside of nowhere watching another man's sheep in in order to be readied for this great work. An extraordinary task ordained by an extraordinary, omnipotent God. We don't write scripts like this. No, 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 no. We look at what appears to be extraordinary. We look at people who we think are extraordinary. And then we try to squeeze them into the plan and the purpose of God. God doesn't work that way. As I read scripture. The Bible, the history of Christ's church is filled with examples of unusual, unconventional, peculiar, ordinary men that God has used in extraordinary ways. In extraordinary times. Where God, omnipotent God, all-powerful God, goes to extraordinary lengths to divinely sanction and shape a man or men for the task at hand. Paul writes it like this. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know, sometimes we think, if God would only save so-and-so, some celebrity, some athlete, think of what they could do for Jesus. Friends, don't think like that. Don't think like that. As one writer puts it, we think, oh, how much that man could do to make Christianity cool. As opposed to men who can make Christianity clear. Amen, brother. 
God doesn't need, as this writer says, celebrities' names to make the name above all names acceptable or cool. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah saying, I am the Lord, this is my name, my glory I will give to no other. He shares his glory with no one. So this account is about our extraordinary God who takes a man, beloved, with some basic instincts of a deliverer. Okay, and those basic instincts, make no mistake, were placed there by God in the first place. Instincts to be honed by way of his gracious preparation. Because God, almighty God, uses men as they are, but he does not leave them where they are. And I'm not speaking in geographical terms or locale per se, but I'm more or less, uh, more than that, speaking in, in spiritual terms or influential terms by way of his anointing. So here's some basic instincts or characteristics in a man, Moses, instincts or characteristics of a deliverer. And they're, they're shown to us here in three different episodes. Three episodes in Moses' life with three different people groups. As Moses comes into contact with the Egyptians of his own Israelite people and Midianites. And in each case, there are circumstances that reveal for us something about Moses' character, while at the same time reveal something of the plans of God for this man. And what we see most specifically here in Moses is that he will not let injustice pass. Did you get that in the account? He will not let injustice pass. So he enters into three situations here showing compassion, courage, zeal, desiring, if you will, to right the wrong. Wanting to correct the injustice. He wants to undo the oppression, because in his eyes, it's not right. I was reminded this week, I think it was 1987, 86 or 87, I went back home to visit my folks for a portion of the summer. And a movie had come out in 1985, and by this time, 86 or 87, it was on VHS that you would have to go rent. And my dad would rent this movie over and over again, so I watched it with him a couple of times. It was a cowboy western called Silverado. And there's four cowboys in it who who would not tolerate, they would not tolerate injustice. So throughout the movie, whenever there's injustice being portrayed, one of the cowboys, it was played by Danny Glover, he'd look at the situation, he'd go, that ain't right. (laughs) And every time he said, that ain't right, business was about ready to take place. They were ready to take care of business. They were going to right the wrong. And in all three of these episodes here, we see that same kind of spirit in Moses. He looks at the situation. He says, that ain't right. I'm going to take care of business. And he commences to take care of business. So Moses shows us here that he had compassion for the oppressed, passion for justice. And notice here, the moment that we read that Moses had grown up, we're told that he identified with Israel. Notice that. 
Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. There's no question here as to where Moses' heart is at. And the author of Hebrews comments on this, noting that Moses chose to identify with his own people rather than to enjoy the luxury and the power of Egypt. Hebrews 11.24, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So with all the privileges of Egypt, his own, he chooses to be identified with the people of God. And as such, is unwilling, beloved, to merely stand by. In other words, this is an interest from a distance. This man's engaged. You know, when Christians only stand by or stand around waiting for the next helper or servant to step up, which is unfortunate when that happens, they never ask, Lord, what might have you have me to do? How might you use me? They're always looking to the other. They're always looking at others or for others to step up and, and do the work of the ministry. And then that provides the continuation of the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And as I heard one preacher say with regard to that, if you can't say amen, say ouch. (laughs) Moses has stepped out from Egyptianese, from outside of palace pleasures, And he went out to his people. He studied his people. He engaged the people. He entered into the suffering of the people. He wasn't content to stand by. And he certainly wasn't content simply to sit around on his hands. May we not be hand sitters. So he looks upon his people. And he saw here an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, this isn't just a fist fight, by the way. Here's an Egyptian taskmaster seeking to strike down to death a Hebrew. And when, when Moses tells us that he saw this, Moses is the author, he says he saw this, he doesn't mean that he, he looked with impassiveness. Like, oh, there's a guy getting beat half to death. It means he took action. This is just like when God sees. God's sovereign. We read in the Bible anthropomorphic terms. God comes down to our level to help us understand. When God sees, he takes action. In fact, in verse 25 here, we're told that God saw the sons of Israel and he knew he took notice. And the Hebrew word for God to see can literally mean for God to provide. He sees, he provides. And here in this, in, in this passage, Moses sees his brethren in need. And he engages. He looks with emotion. He's involved. And he seeks to take action on their behalf. Mirroring for us God's actions on behalf of Israel. As we'll get to in verse 25. 
So here then in verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, we know, beloved, that his intent was good, but but his action here in the matter might not have been the right thing to do. Now, Stephen looks at this Old Testament account in his message that I cited earlier in the service, and he explains that Moses' motivation was good. Notice, Acts 7.24, Seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand Okay, Stephen says this is the motivation of Moses. This is the motivation behind the act when he engaged in defending a fellow brother, striking down the Egyptian. Okay, apparently then, Moses had an increasing sense of awareness with regard to his role as an intercessor, as a deliverer on behalf of the oppressed covenant people of God. He had this growing sense of awareness that he was the man to step in. So here he takes his first steps out of being identified with the Egyptians and into being identified with the Hebrew people. But they did not understand. The question is, Did Moses do what was right? Did Moses do what was good? And the answer, it's very complex, actually. The answer is very complex. Because as you look at this passage of Scripture, we look at verse 12 and we say, it seems as though he had a troubled conscience because he looked this way and that way and then killed the Egyptian and buried the Egyptian. But that verse could be read in an entirely different way. And that is, It could be read like this. He looked this way and that, looking for someone else to intercede, and when he saw there was no one else, he took action. Because we read that phrase elsewhere, Isaiah 59. Later on, there's a phrase like that. So commentators over the millennia are split over the matter since there's not enough information to go on. And Exodus, as you know, will later provide the law, thou shall not murder, along with numerous other parameters with regard to death. Murder is unwarranted homicide, and it's always wrong, but not every instance of killing is murder. There is certain allowance given depending on the circumstances. So all that to say, we don't know for certain whether or not Moses intended to murder him or if things just plain got out of hand. And that can happen. But, what's this morning side with the half of commentators, the one half of commentators who say it was his impetuous, that is his impulsive temperament. His motives were right, but his timing and, and the extent of making the right wrong was wrong. We'll go with that. Fair enough? All right. Now, he did what many of us would do in similar... He did probably exactly what I would do. 
when something needs to be done, when someone needs to act, I'm tempted to act. You know, the problem in our day, I was thinking about this, is not impetuous men, unfortunately. The problem in our day is passive men whose spines are made out of jello. And I was reminded of this this week with one of our sisters who's five months pregnant, was in Balboa Park with her two little boys, and here's a 17-year-old or something around that age using profanity, yelling, screaming at one of his friends. And she just simply asked him, hey, I I got my two boys here. Can, Can you please not speak like that? He presses up against this pregnant woman face to face as other men observe. You shake your head. Oh, I was already burying him in the sand. (laughs) And as I look at scripture, so to speak, so to speak, I'd rather see a man honed by God to settle him down than some passive man who constantly needs a kick in the rear end to get moving. This is what we see. Peter. Witnessing the arrest of Jesus, takes a sword, lops off a man's ear, going for his head. But Jesus had to teach Peter that his leadership was of a different kind. It is a leadership of shepherding. Feed my sheep, he said to Peter. Tend my lambs. Because Peter was just another ordinary man who who was being shaped into an extraordinary leader by an omnipotent, mighty God. David, a warrior, had to be honed by God. Paul, a man of zeal, honed by God to be a leader like this. John and James, they walk out of a village that rejects Christ and they said, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven? We'll consume them all right now. Let's do it. No, Jesus rebuked them. He was preparing men for a shepherding role. But I like men who are prepared from this basis than passivity. So here, calm down. (laughs) Birthed out of his desire for justice, the next day, this same strong man of God with this strong sense of justice built into him, knowing the one true God. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Moses asked, why are you doing this? He looks at the situation. He says, in effect, that ain't right. And he intervenes. Now, had they understood they certainly wouldn't have called him out on this day. But again, Acts 7.25 says they didn't understand. Verse 14, he answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? You mean to kill, you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Lump in his throat, Moses, lump in his throat, was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Why? No idea. I don't know why Pharaoh would trip out like this. I would think Moses, as a prince in the palace, would have the right to off anybody he wanted. Apparently not. 
Maybe it was because of his Hebrew roots. Don't know. It's all speculative. So what Moses doesn't know at this point, as he's being sanctified by Almighty God, is that that he must be sanctioned by God. He must be authorized, sanctified by God as the deliverer for God. That's the theme of the next chapter that we'll look at next week. So he realizes at this point, imagine this, all of his hopes, all of the convictions within, all of his hopes to be a deliverer for God's people, all of his dreams have been shattered. Word is out, Pharaoh wants his head. Talk about trials. So at this point in time, here's Moses. He doesn't fit with anybody. He doesn't fit with the Egyptians. He doesn't fit with his own Hebrew people. Having freely roamed the palace halls for so many years, he can't go back there. So at this point in his life, Moses doesn't fit with anybody. You been there? You ever been there? Many of us, at certain points of our life, most specifically our Christian life, we realize we don't fit in a particular situation or setting. Perhaps you feel that way at work. You are a light in the midst of darkness. You are savoring salt, preserving, having a preserving effect, whether you realize it or not. You're the people of God. So here, Moses is essentially run out of town by both Egyptians and Hebrews. Moses senses a call, and he's run out of town. He is sensing a call to be judge and deliverer, and yet faces rejection of his own people. You know, uh, Stephen's sermon that I cited a couple times now picks up on this theme of rejection. And he says to the Jews on that day, as he's wrapping up his sermon, just ready to be stoned and step into glory, he references this, and he says, You always reject the people God sends to you. The pattern of you stiff-necked people, he says, is that you always resist the Holy Spirit of God. Persecuting those that God sends to you. So these two Hebrews, rejecting Moses and his act of intercession on their behalf on this day is just one more picture of the Jews rejecting Moses ultimately rejecting Jesus, the one to whom Moses and the prophets pointed. And you know the rebellion and the rejection of Moses' leadership is a frequent occurrence in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Time and time again, this guy is opposed So much rejection that years later, Moses himself doubts God's choice of him. And as a result, rejects himself. Is God's called man. Now, isn't it interesting that hundreds of years later, Moses is the hero of the Pharisees. But not while he's living. Not while he's serving, such is, such is the case, beloved, with most proclaimers of God's truth. 
Jesus said in Mark 6, verse 4, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. But calling a guy with a briefcase from out of town, and he's embraced and loved, and now he's the expert. Notice verse 15b. Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So Moses comes upon a well. He flees. So the well, that would have been the center of whatever particular village this was. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. In verse 18, we read that Reuel, also known as Jethro, we read in the next chapter, he was a priest. We don't know what kind of priest. We don't know what kind of priesthood this was. And he has daughters. So here's these daughters. They're, they're coming to the well. They come to get water. And this was the job that the women did to this very day in, in countries in the east. Women do this. Men do not do this. So here they are. And along comes some shepherds. Verse 17. There's a squabble. They probably dealt with this regularly. Bullied. There's a word for you today. They were bullied. So here's Moses, far removed from Egypt, still looking like an Egyptian. Moses was still passionate about justice. As the daughters are driven away by these shepherds, he says again, that ain't right. And he engages. And he drives them away. This guy has a backbone of steel. I love men with steel backbones. In however they serve. He helped them. He saved them. The girls go home. They report this to their father. They report what has happened. And in verse 19, they say, an Egyptian delivered us. Imagine how he looked. Shaved head probably, shaved face. They were shaven people. Egyptian clothing, royal clothing, no doubt. He delivered us. You get that? There's that word again. He delivered us. Now, in response, Daddy says, basically, how in the world could you forget to show this man hospitality? He delivers you from this, and you didn't bring him home to break bread? Go get the man. Go get the man. Let's show him hospitality. Let us eat together. So here Moses, the deliverer, rejected by the Egyptians, rejected by his own Israelite people, is welcomed by Midianites, a nomadic people, tent dwellers. So this man who doesn't fit anywhere is driven into the wilderness and settles with this people group, And God provides a home there for him. In exile. And then this act leads to a long learning apprenticeship from Moses, the man being honed by God, prepared by God. What a transition, amen? You know, how do we look at our transition in life? It's called sanctification to be theological. Sanctification. Prepared and being prepared by God. Especially when you have to sit on a hillside for 40 years, <laughs> wondering what, we, we look up to heaven and we say, what are you doing? 
do you know what you're doing? God, how can you know what you're doing if I'm in this situation? We do that, don't we? Do we not? So for 40 years, he's going to shepherd the flock of Jethro, Reuel, another man's sheep in the backyard of nowhere. He gets married. He marries one of his daughters, Zephorah. And Moses here, who has a heart for justice, defense of the helpless, because of his impulsive temperament, it costs him another 40 years of learning in order to be readied for the task of the very thing he sensed he was called to do. Amazing, isn't it? So why this hard road? I mean, we look at, Lord, why so hard? Couldn't, couldn't you have blessed his efforts? Couldn't you make things so much easier for the man? And while you're at it, make it a lot easier for me as well. You can only imagine what's going through the mind of Moses as he sits on this hillside. 40 years is a long time. Only, I've only been alive for 50. 40 years. So he, he, he has a son. Notice verse 22. She gave birth to a son, Zephora, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershom means sojourn there or, or even expelled one. Moses said, here's what fits my life, an expelled one. From a prince in Egypt to a seemingly forgotten nobody. Perhaps thinking, what a wasted life. How many of you this morning, middle-aged people probably, what a wasted life. Think again. Here's God, the God of meticulous sovereignty, right here, never allows the life of his people to go to waste. Ever. This is the preparatory work of God that will enable Moses to truly, here it is, beloved, as we get into this, to truly identify with his people. Now, notice this. Just as Israel would later flee into the wilderness, here's Moses fleeing into the wilderness. Just as Israel will later meet God at Sinai, Moses will meet God at Sinai next week. And here, Moses describes himself as a stranger in a strange land, and God's people will also later consider themselves as strangers in a strange land. So Moses is almost pre-living the story of God's people, is he not? Moses' story is Israel's story. This is a miniature exodus. God is preparing a deliverer who will understand the trials of God's people. You know, Midian also is the place that Israel will temporarily settle. Once they're delivered, where do they go? To a place that their leader's familiar with. He knows the terrain. He knows the landmarks. He knows the resources. After all, he did sit on a hillside for 40 years there. God's awesome, isn't he? He's mighty, sovereign, omnipotent, 
wise, it's beautiful. So Moses, who had grown up in relative luxury in uh, Pharaoh's palace here, you know, he did not experience the alienation of his people, that which they experienced. So God, in his wisdom, causes Moses, who's the cause of all things, who's sovereign? God. Yes, it's hard to understand when we're in the midst of it. God causes him to be driven out. He causes Moses to know the alienation of being a stranger in a strange land. And this is a great lesson for us all, beloved, because some of you are in the wilderness now, right? Some of you are on your way into the wilderness, and some of you are coming out. This is life. In verses 23 to 25, now look, we see a man called by God. He senses this call, but God hasn't sanctioned him for this yet. God is preparing him for this. So here's a common man, let's face it, who God will make extraordinary and do an extraordinary thing through this man. Okay, so, yeah, here's the man. Here's Moses. As we said at the outset of this study, the Exodus is not about Pharaoh. The Exodus is not about Moses. The Exodus is not about the nation of Israel. The Exodus, like every other book of the Bible, is about God. Almighty God. So, here in verses 23 to 25, we see why God is doing what he's doing. Why God has been the cause of driving this man out. He's the primary cause, secondary cause, Israelites who did not understand, and Egyptians, i.e. a Pharaoh who wanted him dead. They're the secondary cause. God's the primary cause because he's the sovereign. So here we see why God does what he does in preparing an ordinary man with some basic instincts of a deliverer to carry out this extraordinary task. Notice four verbs used to describe God's action. Notice, 23 to 25. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. This is beautiful. It's all about God. This is a synopsis of God's involvement with his people, even when it seems like he is distant. Chapter 1 covers how many years? The Exodus? Hundreds. Chapter 2, 80 years. All the loud stuff that goes on for the rest of the book, one to two years tops. And the point was last week, God doesn't only work when things are loud and obvious. He's always at work when it's quiet. Nothing escapes God's notice here. And nothing escapes this notice in your life. Others may not know what you're going through right now. God does. God knows. The burdens that are weighing you down, your trouble, perhaps you're confused, God knows. God knows. He's there. He's here. And during these these many days, it says many days, that's 80 years, many days, 80 years. You think? The people of Israel were groaning, crying out for help. 
crying out for rescue, pain so deep, emotion so raw, there aren't words to speak. You ever been there? You don't even know what to say. Praise God for the interceding work of the Holy Spirit, amen, who intercedes for us with groanings. In other words, when prayers come out as a sob, God hears them. God hears his people's groaning. In other words, God's not dependent upon articulate words to hear his people. Almighty God. Right? Theologically crisp prayer. No. We want to learn to pray biblically, but when all you can do is sob, he hears his people. The Spirit makes intercession for us. Even when it seems that year after year, he doesn't hear. He hears. Verse 25, notice, we're told that God saw the sons of Israel and he, there it is again, he took notice. That's a theme that we see throughout Scripture. Do you remember back in Genesis 22 when God saw on Mount Moriah Abraham's need for a substitute when he's ready to plunge the knife through his son's chest? He saw. God knew a substitute had to be provided. He didn't look or he didn't see with disinterest or inactivity. No, he he wasn't a mere observer. God saw, God knew, and God providentially provided a substitute, a ram caught in a thicket. Amen? Beautiful. So here God saw, he he heard their cry, yet here's here's the beautiful thing. He's already at work to prepare the deliverer that they're groaning out for. He's been at work. Long before Exodus 1. He's been at work since Genesis 3.15. Notice verse 24, and that's what moves us into this next verse. God heard, verse 24. God heard and God remembered. What did he remember? Oh, I remember their good works. I remember their righteousness. I remember their faithfulness. I remember their their effort. No. Did he remember their sin? Did he remember their unbelief? No. He remembers his own promise of a savior. God remembers. This is the promise of Genesis 3:15, the seed promise. Enmity between the woman And Satan, through this seed, comes the promised one. And it was also a promise to Satan that he would be destroyed. That's the promise remembered because that promise is the promise that was reiterated to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. It's the same promise. And because God cannot lie, he acts to fulfill his will. Not because they deserve it. It's not because they asked in the right way. It's because he is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. What he promises, he will do. This is what he remembers. God is sovereignly at work. Providentially, we've seen his providence. We looked at the Joseph account for six months. 
Did we hear God speak that often? No. What did we see? The providential hand of God moving out his divine will through his people. So because God promised to do it, his word is at stake. Because God promised to do it, his name is at stake. So God's promise to Adam and Eve and his promise to, to, of Satan's doom reiterated to the patriarchs is ultimately, friends, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Abraham's seed. We're seeing a picture of that here. This, the deliverance of God's people. Because Jesus is Abraham's offspring. It is in Jesus we see the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenantal promise of salvation. Because look, God, think about your own salvation. Okay, God has saved you. He is saving you. And he will ultimately save you. You are justified. You're being sanctified. And one day you will be glorified. Amen? foreshadowed by Moses, who God saved, is saving, and will ultimately save, which foreshadows or prefigures how God will deliver Israel and bring him into the promised land. It's beautiful. So again, we see the gospel in the Old Testament, the deliverance of one man, foreshadowing in miniature the great exodus, which we'll see in the coming weeks and months. A miniature exodus through one man, Moses. So the Old Testament mystery revealed in the New Testament is where we read of Jesus who was driven out of Bethlehem. Driven out. Taken to Egypt because of an edict to kill all the baby boys. Taken down to Egypt for refuge. Later, to be taken out of Egypt Not to return to Bethlehem, but to Nazareth. Where during his earthly ministry there in Nazareth, he will be what? Rejected. Moses, rejected. Moses had to flee. And then at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's taken into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, left alone, tempted. And then during his ministry, we're told that he had no place to rest his head. And he was questioned, what? Who gave you this? Authority, just like Moses. Who made you judge? Who gave you the authority? Jesus, who gave you this authority? My father. For my father and I are one. You see, this is how Moses in Hebrews 11.26 considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and treasures in Egypt. He's already identifying with his Savior, ultimate deliverer as a deliverer. Isn't it beautiful? Jesus came to his own. His own rejected him. But to all who received him, what? To them he gave the right to become children of God. Moses sits at a well. Jesus sits at a well with a Samaritan woman, says, give me a drink. She gives him a drink. He turns the whole thing around and offers her living water. It's amazing. So again, the story in Exodus here, it's not about Moses. He's not the main actor. Pharaoh's not the main actor. Israel's not the main actor. This is about 
God in his redeeming love and work shown through his son, Jesus Christ, ultimately. The second person of the Trinity who took weakness upon himself, did not raise the sword, did not exercise his power of authority. Instead, he submitted to death on a Roman cross. The Lord Jesus Christ rising again, providing ultimate deliverance of salvation for his people. That's what this is about. This is about an extraordinary, omnipotent Savior who is our deliverer. And friends visiting here today who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ or have been rejecting the the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the only Redeemer. The only Redeemer. Delivering us from sin in the judgment of impending death according to His covenantal promises of old. So if you're not trusting Christ this morning, whatever whatever brought you here, as I've said before, I don't care who it was, you were here by way of the providence of God. He has you here to hear this. If you're not trusting Christ, the promises of forgiveness, the promises of eternal life, the promises, that is, of heaven after you die, they're not for you. They're not yours. Perhaps in your rebellion refusing to acknowledge your sin, you are trying to hide from God. And this morning, God has brought you here under the searchlight of his word to reveal his son and that he's the only deliverer of the ultimate grand exodus. And this story, this account, which is true and real, points forward to that. He's your only hope. He's your only hope of eternal life. These promises are for God's people who trust His Son. So if you come in this morning and you don't trust Him, I plead with you to trust Him. Because let me tell you this, the gospel is not only an invitation, it's also a command to repent and believe. For Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You believe and you throw yourself upon him by faith. You cannot earn this, man. You can't do enough good to outweigh your bad. You were doomed the moment you were conceived. The only hope is in this glorious Redeemer who provides this ultimate exodus and eternal rest. You can't earn it. You must receive it by faith. And you shall be saved. This deliverer. And Christians, this morning, as I close, if you came in this morning with a somewhat hopeless perspective, whatever you're going through, whatever it is that's nagging you, whatever pain, whatever sobs that you're crying out to God with and for, maybe you feel out of place, you feel as though I am in the wilderness, You feel as though God doesn't hear, God doesn't see, and perhaps you think he doesn't remember. And now you're only here tempted to work up enough gumption to get through the next week. Let me assure you, he says, cast all your cares upon me now. I am yours and you are mine. Trust me. Trust me. As you sit on the hillside in the backyard of nowhere, I'm here. This is holy ground. Amen.
because I am here. Never to leave you, never to forsake you. So when it seems like he's not working, beloved, he is working for God's plan. Never, ever 